Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. I'm Chris Gambino, your host for the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Samuel Myers about his new book, Planetary Health, Protecting Nature to Protect Ourselves. Dr. Myers, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. Dr. Myers, I would wonder if you'd be willing to tell us a little bit about yourself to start off. Sure. So... I'm sort of a confused uh, physician. I'm uh, trained in internal medicine. I've had a very sort of non-linear career path um, that uh, started with confusion as an undergraduate uh, about whether I wanted to be a biologist or a physician with a really strong sense of connection to the natural world and a really strong interest in uh, human biology and how our bodies worked and the complexity of physiology and um, ultimately sort of went to medical school really with an interest in, in sort of finding a synthesis uh, of those interests and um, went to medical school at Yale where there's a strong school of forestry and environmental science, spent a lot of time learning about environmental questions, uh, went off to residency in San Francisco in internal medicine, but midway through residency, uh, was invited to go be a field manager for a brand new uh, conservation and human development project in Tibet up in a place called the Chomolongma Nature Preserve on the north side of Mount Everest and spent two years sort of working at the village level, uh, connecting health and conservation and family planning issues you know, finished my residency, uh, ended up going to U.S. Agency for International Development for two years as a science and diplomacy fellow, again, working at that intersection of natural resource management, human health, population, uh, then went to Conservation International, a big environmental organization, and ran the Healthy Communities Initiative, again, working on those same kinds of issues. But you know, ultimately started to realize that these questions of how changing environmental conditions are affecting human health um, couldn't really be addressed effectively kind of one project at a time. And that um, there's really a need for uh, a whole kind of field uh, of inquiry, a whole discipline focused on these connections of uh, global environmental change and health. And so I I went back to Harvard and uh, did my master's of public health as part of a clinical research fellowship. And uh, really got interested in trying to help build a sort of body of evidence at the core of a, of a field of, of exploration around environmental change and health. So I, I did my master's of public health, uh, and then I started a research career. And uh, for the last sort of, I don't know, almost 15 years have been doing a lot of research showing, you know, what are the human health uh, implications of different kinds of uh, anthropogenic, you know, human-caused environmental change. Uh, and I could talk more about what those kinds of research are, but 
Um, so it's been sort of an, an exploration. I've moved away from clinical medicine and sort of in some ways I've just been moving sort of steadily upstream and thinking about root causes of, of health outcomes and um, really become convinced that our transformation of our planet's natural systems across the board is uh, has, has really become a very urgent global health threat. So um, I guess that's a little bit about me. I, I now am a principal research scientist at the Harvard School of Public Health. Um, and so I wear a research hat where I have teams of folks that are doing this sort of basic research. And then I also direct um, an organization called the Planetary Health Alliance, uh, which is based at Harvard, but includes over 240 organizations in over 40 countries now um, that are coming together in support of the rapid growth of this whole new field uh, of planetary health. And so I split my time between those two different responsibilities. Well, that's great. That The intersection, uh, the synthesis and, and systems the conversation that you mentioned really resonates with the Science, Technology, and Society channel. And those, those themes really uh, kind of span throughout the book. So could you tell us a little bit how you and your colleagues came to write the book? Yeah, well, so I, I mentioned this this field of planetary health, and um, it's a very uh, nascent uh, field. It really, the term planetary health really only came into public parlance around July of 2015 with the release of the Rockefeller Lancet Commission on Planetary Health Report called Safeguarding Human Health in the Anthropocene. And um, that report was the product of a year of work that um, a group of us were involved in uh, starting a, in July of 2014. Um, and the report uh, sort of came out and talked about the serious global health challenges that we face from uh, global environmental change. Um, and it sort of brought this term planetary health out into the public. Um, at the same time, we created the Planetary Health Alliance that I mentioned. But um, this is a very, very young field. It's um, growing really, really quickly. Um, in the last five or six years, there have been multiple new journals in planetary health. There are professorships in planetary health. There are new courses and degree programs. And um, planetary health is being used as a lens by UN agencies to think about uh, the sustainable development goals. And so there's really been this sort of rapid expansion, I think, because it resonates as a way of thinking about the world, but it hasn't had sort of a core um, text. And there's a lot of interest, as I mentioned, in developing courses and teaching uh, planetary health uh, at every level from sort of K through 12 up through graduate school. And so we felt a real um, need for uh, a textbook and uh, so three years ago, my colleague Howie Frumpkin and I um, decided that uh, we really ought to work on that, despite having a lot of other things on our plate. And um, and so it's been quite a journey working together to to get this this book done. But it's really been in response to this need. And I should say, at the same time, we developed a whole um, anthology of case studies, which are sort of freely downloadable. Um, cases that exemplify sort of solutions in planetary health and, and planetary health and action from different uh, examples around the world. And so um, those case studies are also available through the Planetary Health Alliance, but, um, and they complement each other and sort of cross-reference each other. Well, I can say firsthand that I'm 
very appreciative of y'all working on this and, and putting this text forward. Uh, and I can also attest that it is very much accessible across levels of education. And so one of the things I love best about it, which I think makes it most accessible for a younger generation, is the detail in uh, figures and tables and and the actual color content that can showcase these different sources of data and and how data is telling the story of the planetary health conversation. So again, really appreciative that y'all took the time to put this text forward. No, it takes a ton of time and energy to make these things happen. Um, so let's let's move forward a little bit and, and talk about kind of how you've organized and, and, and the ways that you and your colleagues went about kind of synthesizing the information that's out there uh, because it is a new field. And so there's so many big concepts and themes that come into this one text. Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you very much. I'm glad the, the book is accessible. And, and I think Island Press did really a lovely job putting it together. We were very lucky to get a significant grant to allow us to subsidize um, printing the book in color and still keeping the, the price of the book relatively low, which was really important to us. So I'm glad you liked the look of it and found it accessible. Um, in terms of the um, sort of how the book is put together and how we approach the challenge of, of encapsulating what really is a, a lot of very interdisciplinary and, and complex information, um, essentially, we sort of developed an arc uh, of a narrative and um, and the book follows that arc. Uh, and so it really starts with um, a brief history, a sort of intellectual history of where is planetary health coming from? What are our intellectual antecedents and on whose shoulders are, do we stand? Um, and then it talks about... Um, sort of demographic change, uh, population growth and changes in consumption patterns, which are sort of core drivers of uh, environmental change. Uh, then it sort of summarizes um, the sort of major areas of large scale global environmental change. So what's happening with our climate system and climate change, what's happening around biodiversity and biodiversity loss, uh, land use change, uh, altered biogeochemical cycles, water scarcity, uh, global pollution of air, water, and soil, these great big uh, anthropogenic trends that are um, really the, the primary environmental drivers that are of concern. And so we have really sort of world-class um, authors uh, on each of those sections summarizing their own fields in just a few pages to um, try to present, you know, what are the changing environmental conditions that we're concerned about? And then a big chunk of the book is sort of looking at, well, what are the human health consequences of all of those large-scale environmental changes? And we organize that by dimensions of health. And so I, for example, wrote a chapter on food systems and nutrition. There's a chapter on infectious disease. There's one on mental health effects. There's one on population displacement and conflict. There's one on the non-communicable diseases. There's a chapter on happiness. There's sort of a summary chapter just focusing in on climate change and its health effects just because that's such a big topic. Um, and so we really sort of try to take on um, a fairly comprehensive review of how is this vast transformation of our planet's natural systems ultimately 
coming back to impact our own health and well-being and what do we know about that across every dimension of health. And then we pivot to solutions. And you know, the second half of the book is really all about, you know, what do we do about this? And it follows these different sort of domains of human activity. So you know, there's a huge amount that we can do in food systems to um, grow our food much more efficiently, to change our diets in ways that will protect both our health and our natural systems, to be much less wasteful of food that's produced. Obviously, the energy system is an area where rapid transformation is just critical in terms of climate change and also air quality and human health. Um, what can we do toward that transition in the energy system? What about the built environment and the way we design our cities? And there are these enormous opportunities to design our cities so that they really maximize our mental and physical health while dramatically reducing our net ecological uh, footprint. What about the chemical industry and how we produce chemicals and the opportunities for sort of green chemistry? Um, There are chapters on both business and economics and the need for sort of rethinking economic theory, the very significant limitations of GDP as a metric for sort of how we're doing as a society that don't really capture anything that relates to equity or um, what makes us happy um, and the need to think hard about different economics metrics and the need to think about how we produce consumer goods and the need to move toward a circular economy and what are the opportunities for businesses leading the way in innovation that actually will um, help us to get to where we need to go. And so that that whole section of the book goes through these dimensions of human activity and really explores this very, very rich terrain of solutions and all the things that we can do uh, to get toward what we call the great transition, the need for a sort of very significant course correction in how we do pretty much everything that we do on the planet, but the opportunity that that there are a lot of those solutions available. And then the final chapter uh, really sort of draws from those solutions and explores, you know, what an aspirational vision of the future could look like. And um, I think we, we try to make it very clear that we stand at a crossroads and that um, there is a very, very hopeful uh, vision for a future that our children or grandchildren could live in that would look as good or better than anything that humanity's ever uh, experienced if we can you know, get some of these choices right. But it's really a matter of the decisions that we make now. So that's sort of the arc of, of how the book is, is put together. Yeah, and you've got you really do have a lot of the the big names in the fields, and and if our listeners recall, we've had David Montgomery uh, on the program to talk about his most recent book, Growing a Revolution, and he is one of the authors uh, in the text talking about land and soil, and so you you've brought in a, a bunch of the experts. Talk to us a little bit about kind of how that information gets synthesized and and sets the foundation. Maybe give us a, an example, give the audience some notion of kind of where are we, where do we stand with with some of this, some of the fields, uh, kind of where is our planet? And then we'll, we'll kind of return to one of the, the biggest things that I, I see this book doing is often when we have these big conversations about the planet uh, rooted in fear, but this book tends to, to move towards kind of an op- opportunistic 
uh, talking about opportunities, talking about solutions that are motivating people to to think about choices they make and to think about kind of individual, uh, local and, and regional, national decisions uh, that we will need to make uh, to kind of think about the health of the planet. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think where we are, Chris, is that our house is on fire. Um, I mean, there, there's no way to sort of sugarcoat uh, our assessment of where we are with respect to our planet's natural systems. I mean, I'm speaking to you at a moment where 5 million acres of the American West has burned, where the smoke plume is extending across the entire continent so that it's darkening the skies where I am in, in Boston, Massachusetts, uh, where there's another major hurricane stalled in Alabama and Florida, having delivered sort of historic uh, amounts of rain and flooding, and where trying to move people to safety from either of those major disasters is really complicated by a global infectious disease pandemic. And each one of those disasters has human fingerprints all over it. Um, and so, you know, the, where we are is at this crossroads. I mean, the, the size of the sort of human enterprise, the scale of our collective impacts across our planet's natural systems has ballooned in ways that very few people can really wrap their heads around. And it's happened in only the last sort of 50 years. And so if you look at curves of human impacts across natural systems, they all have this sort of exponential looking uh, feel to them. And you know, partly that's because human population has been growing very, very fast. And it's even more because uh, per capita GDP has been growing even faster. But when you combine those two things and you look at total world GDP, you just get this extraordinary sort of almost vertical curve um, that we're on the top of right now. And so human activity has just outpaced our planet's capacity to absorb our wastes or provide the resources that we're using sustainably. And as a result, we're fundamentally transforming all of our natural systems at a pace that's never been seen in the history of our species. And it's not just the climate system, but it's, you know, we're driving the fourth mass extinction of biodiversity, sorry, sixth mass extinction of biodiversity on earth. And we're seeing about 9 million deaths a year from pollution of air, water, and soil. And we're seeing growing problems of arable land and fresh water scarcity. And, you know, I could go on and on, but the, the point is that the scale of our impacts across natural systems is immense and the tra trajectory that we're on is unsustainable. And so um, that, you know, you have to look that squarely in the eye and acknowledge it. And that's not an easy thing to do. But once you've kind of acknowledged, well, geez, we, we can't keep going on this course. The next thing that you realize is we have all these choices in front of us. And so that's, that's the hopeful part of it. We do have the capacity to get on a very different trajectory. And so, you know, you asked for examples, um, you know, 
my own research, for example, as I said, I wear two different hats. So in my research hat, we've looked at how rising carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere are affecting the nutritional value of the food that we eat. And with a whole group of other researchers around the world, we've been looking at staple food crops like rice and wheat and maize and soybeans. Um, And we've shown that when you get to levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere that we expect to reach by the middle of this century, uh, so not not crazy unattainable levels, but um, levels that are in our immediate future, uh, our food becomes significantly less nutritious and loses really important nutrients like iron and zinc and protein. And we've spent the last several years looking at what that means for the populations of over 150 countries around the world and found that we're at risk of putting between 150 and 200 million people into new risk of dietary deficiency of those nutrients, as well as the sort of billion or so people on on the planet now who already suffer from deficiencies whose deficiencies will be exacerbated. And so that's just one small example of um, an impact of our changing our world's biophysical conditions on our nutrition. Now, the flip side is, you know, when you look and, and, and I should say, I mean, that's, that's a teeny example of, and, and there are hundreds of examples of how changing biophysical conditions are uh, potentially impacting our food system. We work on pollinator declines and their impacts. We work on uh, sea surface warming and how ocean warming is affecting fisheries and access to fish in the diet and who that puts at risk. And there's a ton of work that isn't our work on you know, impacts of climate change on crop yields and water scarcity and you know uh, ground level ozone. So you know we could go on and on, but the point is that um, our food system is significantly threatened by rapid environmental change. The flip side is. There are huge opportunities to manage our food system much more effectively. And so there's a role for technology. You know, there's exciting things are happening with precision agriculture and the use of robotics and um, uh, artificial intelligence and smart tractors and reducing agricultural inputs and making our production of food much more efficient with respect to use of land and water and agrochemicals and energy. Um, There are really exciting things happening around food production with uh, protein fermentation and the production of synthetic, you know, milks and eggs and even meats. Um, There are things like the Beyond Meat or Impossible Burger where we're creating um, new products that are, have much, much lower environmental footprints and uh, seem to be as healthy or healthier uh, to consume. Um, so there's, there's all kinds of stuff happening there on the technology side. There are interesting applications of software, like um, the Too Good To Go uh, food app that's really um, gaining a lot of momentum across Europe, where um, you just have an app on your smartphone and consumers, like millions of consumers in Europe, are connected to um, grocers. And when they have food that's about to be past dates, they can advertise that food and consumers can pick up baskets of of fresh produce and uh, baked goods uh, at a much lower price than they would otherwise get. And at the same time, the grocers are able to sell things that they wouldn't otherwise sell. And the planet wins because all of that food doesn't get thrown away and wasted. And so, um, you know, there are interesting um, applications of technology there. 
Um, and then there, there are old, you know, the old sort of um, things that we've known for millennia about um, intercropping and sort of agroecological approaches that are starting to come back um, that really make a difference with respect to um, the environment. And when you start to put together um, all of these different pieces, you realize that there's just an enormous capacity for improving the efficiency with which we produce food, reducing the ecological footprint of our food system. And at the same time, these big co-benefits in terms of, of human health, in terms of, of what we're eating. And so you know, that's an example just from that one dimension of food and nutrition. I could give others around, you know, infectious disease or um, non-communicable diseases. But the point is, um, we are facing uh, a very serious, uh, deeply concerning set of, of trends that are urgently threatening global health, but that we also have a very rich uh, menu of solutions. Yeah, I, I actually am going to ask you to move forward with some of that technology conversation. But before we get there, uh, you mentioned kind of this big plethora of the ways that the agri-ecosystems are kind of impacting uh, planet. Uh, also, some of that in regard to human health due to the, the difference in nutritional value of our crops. Uh, one thing that, that you brought up earlier that I want to kind of revisit is Historically, we I, I think folks in the U.S. And, and abroad have recognized this this notion of global climate migration um, being more prevalent. Uh, but you mentioned what's going on in Florida and Alabama and out west. Uh, we're seeing it now more and more with a national uh, climate induced migration. And so, it, it, can you talk a little bit more about how this climate migration is no longer this abstract idea that um, folks in the U.S. or in other industrialized nations are, are seeing and having to deal with uh, from global migrants, but now kind of within in the nation, state to state, we're seeing migration. Yeah, no, I mean, that's absolutely true. And obviously, there's a very robust conversation about that in the United States right now, um, particularly with the disasters that have been unfolding um, and there's a lot of talk about, uh, you know, what should we be doing with communities that are surrounded by forests and should they be going back, you know, should Paradise, California be redeveloping in the same place? Um, or do we need to start thinking about moving some of those communities? And the same thing is true of these low-lying coastal communities that are extraordinarily vulnerable to flooding in the context of rapid sea level rise and more extreme uh, storms and the erosion of sort of coastal barrier systems, you know, the, the wetlands, the vegetated dunes, the coral reefs around the world. And so you have this, um, you know, sort of triple threat to these low-lying coastal areas. And, you know, I think there's a, this is a moment um, where as a, you know, as a country, we need to come together with a recognition that not only do we need to embrace sort of mitigation of these problems and try to stop uh, greenhouse gas emissions and try to reduce uh, the pace of climate change and destruction of uh, coastal barrier systems and other kinds of large-scale environmental change, 
we also need to think about adaptation and some of this um, environmental change is already well underway. And um, part of adaptation is probably planned uh, dis, you know, planned migration. So instead of waiting for the disaster to flood people's houses out and then, you know, using federal insurance to rebuild those houses, maybe it's time to think about a, a better way that um, is fair and focuses on uh, equity uh, to help these communities move to places where they're going to be safer. And um, that would be good from a public health standpoint. It would probably be good from a budgetary standpoint, not to keep um, subsidizing the rebuilding of, uh, of these cities and places that are getting destroyed. But I think it's a, it's a pretty active conversation and one that we need to be having as a nation. I think you, you nailed it with a great point. Uh, and it's, it's clearly a, a new and scary idea for a lot of people, this notion of planned migration. Uh, and, and you brought up a lot of the, the questions that we've got to answer and how, how we've got to be able to do it equitably. And, and I know you have some of that ethics conversation going on in the text here, and we, we can get to that. But I wanted to return to the, the health side of things and talking about kind of toxic exposure and, and more urban places with regard to the scale of technologies available. You did a great job and I, and I hope the audience realizes that when we talk technology, we're not just talking about uh, applicating technologies, but um, you, you even mentioned an app, right? We're, we're able to use these, these newer technologies on our smart devices to better connect. Uh, and I, I was just listening the other day, right? We're using technology right now to communicate uh, with geolocating tags of populations in the West to be able to tell them uh, where to go, when to go. Uh, and we're doing that through applications. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that's right. I'm not sure though, Chris, what was your, what was your question there? If we could return to kind of talking about the scale of technologies now with regard to say uh, more human health, uh, kind of toxins and, and kind of urban environments. So, so different environments than the application for agroecosystems. Sure. Um, I mean, you know, there, there's a whole really interesting field of green chemistry. So when you think about, you know, exposures, whether it's in urban or rural areas, um, exposures to what, and usually the what is, um, you know, toxic, hazardous chemicals. And there's something like 80,000 of those chemicals that have not been uh, well tested for human health impacts that are um, still out there in the system. And uh, there's a pretty urgent need to change that paradigm and start producing um, chemicals through what we call green chemistry, which is um, focused on chemicals that are not um, toxic, that are not uh, persistent in the environment, that don't bioaccumulate um, through uh, the biosphere. And so that's sort of one area I think that um, is important. There are also technologies like renewable energy technology, um, where um, when you think about the sort of exposures that urban populations experience, um, one of the biggest issues uh, globally, in fact, maybe the biggest toxic exposure, uh, has to do with both indoor and outdoor air pollution. And um, there's a huge role for uh, technologies in addressing that. I mean, the simplest from 
moving away from coal-fired power uh, to solar and wind, which obviously is very, very important in addressing climate change and greenhouse gas emissions, but also um, pays enormous dividends in terms of improved air quality. There's also a huge problem in lower income countries where um, something like a billion homes are using uh, biomass burning. They're burning wood or animal dung uh, in indoor uh, fires to cook food. And the exposures, particularly for women and children, uh, that result from that biomass burning are uh, a huge health hazard for uh, for those people. And it's estimated that somewhere around uh, 7 million people a year are dying uh, annually from exposure to air pollution. And there are technologies uh, to replace those kinds of indoor um, cooking stoves with uh, electricity uh, or even natural gas in the short term, um, which dramatically improve the air quality in homes and help the health of of those women and kids. And so um, those are examples of, of technologies that um, are well understood, um, where it's really just a, a, an issue of making them more um, pervasive and getting them to penetrate throughout uh, lower income countries. So, I mean, I think there's, we could talk for the next 24 hours about um, a variety of technologies that would um, address these problems. And some of them are very high tech, um, some of them are very low tech. I mean, there's a wonderful example in West Africa where, um, you know, the innovation, uh, first of all, the problem is that when you build dams in West Africa, um, you end up um, creating freshwater systems above the dams that are terrific for the proliferation of freshwater snails, which turn out to be the intermediate host for a disease called schistosomiasis that affects you know, millions and millions of people throughout, uh, particularly throughout Africa with really large health implications. And um, there's some fascinating work that uh, Sana Sokolov and Julio DeLeo and their colleagues at Stanford have done showing that you can reintroduce a native prawn uh, in those habitats and that the prawn is a predator of the snail and it starts to remove the snails. Um, it significantly reduces exposure to schistosomiasis while simultaneously providing a really important uh, nutritional source for those communities and a source of income because they can sell the prawns. And so, you know, that's a, a really, really low tech um, innovation. But um, across the board, there there are a lot of these kind of innovative, innovative solutions, depending on which problem we're talking about. That's a great segue uh, in terms of talking about kind of all the plethora of technologies that are there and uh, on the scale of low tech to high tech and the notion that these technologies are available to then be decided upon with regard to solutions. So as we come to kind of closing out our conversation of the book, you end the book with uh, this, this big forecast on saving ourselves, saving our planet. If you could kind of paint that, I said, I said we'd come back here. So if you could kind of paint that, uh, bigger picture that the the ending of the book with regard to okay what what do we do now what does the future hold uh, and kind of what so, what are some of the decisions we might need to make as a society? Yeah, well, as I said, I mean, I I, I think that we find ourselves at a crossroads, and I think that you know down 
one path, we continue on sort of our current trajectory. And um, we're already seeing what that looks like, right? I mean, the, the fires rage hotter and larger and the storms get bigger and, uh, you know, the human health impacts get more extensive. And um, there's not a lot of relief in sight down that pathway. But there's a different trajectory where we essentially come together with the collective sort of political will as a global society to change the way we live on earth. And that means changing, you know, how we um, produce our food and a little bit about what we eat. Um, It means changing our energy system and designing our cities in a more intelligent way and uh, thinking about manufacturing and how we produce and consume goods. uh, And all of those solutions are there. And it's, it's easy to imagine uh, an aspirational vision for the future where, you know, in 50 or 100 years, you know, the global human population has actually stabilized just as part of the normal demographic transition from educating girls and providing economic opportunities for women and giving access to family planning for couples who want it, um, where population has stabilized and started to fall, where we've created a zero carbon energy economy because we have to, um, where you know we're producing food and manufactured goods with just dramatically more uh, efficiency, where we've designed our cities to optimize you know mental and physical health and minimize our ecological footprint, and where every every passing decade is bringing you know more breathing room for the rest of the biosphere, and that. That path is, you know, just as feasible as sticking on our current um, trajectory, but it requires um, coming together to take collective action. It requires holding our governments accountable so that, for example, these massive trillion dollar stimulus packages uh, and foreign assistance packages that are being developed in response to the COVID pandemic are being spent to assist in that uh, transition to how we live as opposed to sort of propping up a kind of decaying system that's really choking the life out of the planet. Um, And so it's going to require holding governments accountable. It's going to require insisting that um, businesses are um, adopting different kinds of practices if they want to keep our business. Um, And so it requires, you know, an activated uh, global citizenry. But if we can achieve that, um, you can imagine a world which has you know, really stabilized around all of these issues where um, there's more equity um, across the board, where it's never been better to be a person of color, an indigenous person, uh, or a girl or woman, where um, health parameters continue to be as high as they've ever been in history, and where uh, the rest of the biosphere is actually gaining um, some breathing room. So it's, it, you know, we really see it as a fairly um, stark choice and sort of a fascinating, albeit um, alarming time to be uh, here on earth, because, you know, now is the time that we're going to really um, cast our vote in what kind of world we want our, our grandchildren to live in. That's a great, great synopsis uh, for the future. 
And you've, you've written this critical and pinnacle text for the emerging field of planetary health. But what are you working on now? Well, so as I said, I uh, direct the Planetary Health Alliance, which is this large consortium of organizations around the world dedicated to uh, moving this field forward and invite any of your listeners to uh, come to our website at planetaryhealthalliance.org and uh, get our newsletter and become part of our community. And so there's a lot of work in um, continuing to develop educational materials and support the growth of the community. We're planning our next annual meeting um, and also sort of thinking about how we mainstream these uh, these messages so that more people understand um, you know, where we stand as a global society. So that's a big part of what I'm doing. And then the other part is my research career where um, right now I'm very involved in research on how um, global pollinator declines are uh, affecting human health and trying to understand what we call the pollinator gap, which is um, the sort of health penalty that we're paying today as a result of not having enough wild pollinators to um, produce uh, the pollinator-dependent crops, which actually protect us from a lot of um, chronic diseases. And thinking through how we quantify um, the health benefits that we would gain globally if we adopted pollinator-friendly practices to encourage more uh, wild pollinators. And um, it looks as if there are around half a million deaths a year today from not having enough pollinators in our systems. um, And that as we look toward 2050, those numbers will continue to rise Um, but that we would gain enormous public health and economic benefits from actually encouraging wild pollinator uh, populations um, through these pollinator-friendly practices. So that's one of the major projects that I'm engaged in right now, but um, a few other research projects as well that that I, I probably shouldn't go on and on about. Well, we look forward to seeing the research you continue to put out. And again, uh, reading this text was very engaging and I, I learned a ton and I really appreciate you joining us and and talking with us about some of the key concepts and and where you see the field kind of moving uh, into the future. So thank you so much again for joining us, Sam. All right. Well, Chris, I really enjoyed talking with you. So thanks for, uh, thanks for having me on.